This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. It's Wednesday, January 2nd, and this is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Jay Wood joins us to discuss New Year's resolutions and virtues. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm joined by my co-host, Christianity's editor-in-chief, Mark Galley. Happy New Year, Mark. Happy New Year. Sort of Happy New Year. As I was telling my wife in December, December, we've had a, a balmy December, but we always get, uh, she hates it when I use this term, we get punished in January, either with sub-zero temperatures or a ton of snow within the first couple of weeks. So I'm bracing for it. Self-inflicted punishment since you moved here from California. There you go. All right. So I understand that you have known our guest today for a long time. Yes, I have. Jay Wood, what, 30, 40 years? I don't know. So Jay Wood is professor of philosophy at Wheaton College with a special interest in, among other things, virtue ethics and philosophical and theological ethics, about which we've had many a discussion and or argument, depending on what your perspective is. He is author or contributor to many volumes, including co-author of a book on intellectual virtues and a contributor to the Oxford Book of Virtue. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. We're glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're here. I don't know about Mark. I'm I'm curious how salty this is going to get. Well, as Jay and I like to say, we love to talk about virtue, but we're actually the worst possible people to actually display virtue. So speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, whatever. Maybe this will just be giving ourselves some vitamins to start out the new year. So our topic is New Year's resolutions. It's not unusual for people to make resolutions at the beginning of a new year. A little uh, internet research and dependence on Wikipedia, I discovered that Babylonians made promises to their gods at the start of each year. And that Romans began each year by making promises to the god Janus, for whom the month of January is named. And in the Middle Ages... Knights took uh, what's called the peacock vow at the end of the Christmas season each year to reaffirm their commitment to chivalry. There are all sorts of statistics about uh, how many Americans make vows uh, at New Year's and how many keep them, and everything from 40 to 55 percent. But one site in particular, statistic.com, says in 2018, 53 percent of Americans vowed to save more money, 45 percent vowed to lose weight or get in shape. As to how many actually fulfill these vows, percentages range from everywhere from 8 to 25%. So it's a pretty low number. At any rate, Christians often join in this practice of making resolutions, and they might include a resolution to work on their character, to become more patient or more considerate or one thing or another. So today on Quick to Listen, we want to think about the moral virtues in particular and the particular shape they take for Christians and if and how we can become a person of virtue. So with that introduction, Morgan, what do you think of? What do you feel? What's your gut check about New Year's resolutions? I think a couple of years ago, I became aware of what people may know as SMART goals. And I'm not going to pretend to sit here and remember every single part of that acronym. But in that acronym is the word specific, measurable, timely. There's some things that make them very concrete. And I think that when it comes to setting your mind about 
trying a new habit or trying to do something different that breaks you out of this other routine that you've set, it's extremely important to be really realistic in what you're doing. And as I also learned a couple years ago, I, I think I set a goal for myself about how many times I wanted to swim during the week. And I think my goal was like four or five times. And I realized that that was actually a really bad goal. It was okay just to set a really modest number. Like I want to swim twice. You know, that was like very achievable and I could actually do. So I think my resolutions, if I do have them, they get less grandiose every year and just very granular um, and sometimes kind of modest in a way that I wouldn't have expected them to be a couple years ago. For me, it wavers between indifference to annoyance. Uh, I have not found New Year's a particularly time of year that I feel like it's time for me to get my act together in some way. I, that happens at various other times of the year. But it's, it's annoying in this respect. I do work out at the gym two or three times a week. In November and December, it's easy to find a space in the weight room or on a particular machine I want to use. But when come oh, January, you. oh my gosh, the, the gym is packed <laughs> and it's hard to find space to do anything. So that's my annoyance part of it. Okay, there that's real. So let's get started and talk with our expert, Jay Wood. So when we're talking about Christian virtues, what are we talking about exactly? It might be helpful just to clarify what we mean by virtues in the first place and then differentiate between Christian versions of virtues and other traditions and their virtue. What is virtue? Well, I think of it as a, an acquired habit of excellent functioning in common spheres of human life that are difficult and important. So this deeply anchored abiding habit of excellence in areas of life that are challenging and important. And among those areas, I would count our intellectual lives, our moral lives, our spiritual lives, our social, uh, our social lives. So all of these areas have, the, have distinctive virtues associated with them. So talk about what would be some of the vir what specific virtues that we're talking about then. In the Christian tradition, we recognize the four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, courage, and temperance, and then three theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. These are distinctive. If you look at Aristotle's list of virtues, you will find it does not include many things that Christians would want to count as virtues. For example, you will not find humility, kindness, gentleness, forgivingness, I mean, these traits that are so important to Christian life are utterly absent on his list of virtues. When you, why do you use the word cardinal? Why do we use the word cardinal to talk about those and then theological for the other? Cardinal uh, stems from the Latin root carde, meaning hinge. And so these four cardinal virtues are, you might say, the hinges on which the whole of human life swings, and it either swings <laughs> easily or with great difficulty. Hence the cardinal virtues. And then the theological virtues are those that are uh, essential for our growing into Christ-likeness. Uh, faith, hope, and love, Paul discusses in uh, Corinthians 13, we know that two will pass away, but love will not. Okay, I feel like I know the Bible decently well, and when I think of the word virtue, I cannot remember a Bible verse that uses the actual word virtue. Well, let me offer one. Please. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5 where he enjoins all Christians as follows, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. And then he goes on to list some virtues that he thinks that are, that are important to, uh, for us to add. So faith, you might say, 
all by itself and unsupported in other ways is not the whole of the Christian walk, but make every effort to add to your faith virtue. And of course, there are just tons of places in the scriptures that you can go to find lists. There are these great grocery lists of virtues and vices. But they don't necessarily use the word virtue. Gifts of the Spirit would be one. Right. Love, joy, Love, peace, joy. patience, exactly. patience, kindness. Is there a reason why they—I'm just curious, like, why they don't use that term? Clearly, since you've been mentioning Aristotle, it's something that has been kind of in the discourse for hundreds of years when at least the New Testament is getting written. Is this just kind of maybe a, a non-churchy word? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, Peter does use the word virtue. And I think it was just commonplace to understand that certain of the traits that get listed in scriptures were acknowledged as traits that were essential for Christian formation. When Peter talks about make every you know effort to add to your faith virtue, you might ask, well, why does he request that we do that? And in the verse just previous to that, he says, so that you might become a partaker of the divine nature. And that, of course, is the goal of the Christian life, is to become little Christ, to die to self, to put on Christ, to die to the old man. So Scripture speaks you know, repeatedly of that goal of Christ-likeness. So ask yourself this question, was Christ merciful? Was he just? Was he forgiving? Yes, yes, yes. So anytime you see these things mentioned in Scripture, I think that you could say these ought to become habits of excellence in our own lives. The breakdown that you gave a couple minutes ago, is that something that was developed by the early church fathers, or where did that kind of division of virtues come about? You mean the cardinal and the theological? Yeah. I don't know that I can give you an exact date. The cardinal virtues were also mentioned by the ancient Greeks. Now, let's bear in mind that that Israel was thoroughly Hellenized by the time Christianity began to emerge. And so Paul on Mars Hill in Athens makes free use of his knowledge of Stoic and Epicurean philosophy. The philosophers invite him to come back to speak again. So my guess is that this language was in the air, as it were, or a part of the culture, uh, if you will, at this time. So, And then what do Christians bring unique to it? They add some virtues that the pagan world is not even thinking about. Right. Are they actually interpreting the classic virtues in fresh and new ways in light yes. of Christ? Yes. We can make a distinction here, as Aquinas does, between, you might say, the pagan virtues and the Christian virtues. What Christians have said about Aristotle, for example, is that he gives us good advice for how to flourish in a sort of common human life. And so the claim is that Aristotle's virtues, though, do not prepare us for the life to come. And so the Christian, the great Christian teachers about the virtues said, we need to have something more. We need to have the gifts that the Holy Spirit confers upon us in order to achieve the virtues. So Christian philosophers often differentiate between natural virtues or pagan virtues and infused virtues. This is a distinction that is prominent in Aquinas, for example, one of the greatest expositors of the Christian virtue tradition. And an infused virtue is something we have in virtue of the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So on, on the Christian way of thinking about things, you know, but we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. So that gradual process of one degree uh, to, to the other is something that requires the, 
the help of the Holy Spirit. So naturally, many Christians become uh, nervous when we start having conversations about virtue because we have other verses that talk about, I have, I've already been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who already lives in me. I already share in the divine likeness in some sense because of faith through grace. So how do you understand the tension between those verses and what the verses you've been quoting? Well, the verse I just read said we're being transformed from one degree to another. So it's, it's not instantaneous. It's not something that has been fully realized. You read in Hebrews, uh, says in chapter 5, speaking to the, to the hearers or the readers of that epistle, you know, you need someone to teach you again, all over again, the very first principles of God's Word. You need milk, not solid food. For solid food, the writer goes on to say, is for the mature, for those who have had their faculties trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So here, even the, even the very business of distinguishing good from evil requires that we mature and grow and practice. Think of this list here. Think of these scriptural uh, uh, injunctions. <laughs> Train yourself in all godliness. And these are st- scriptural quotes. C- yeah. Correct. Work that you've out. quoted to me many times. Over okay, the okay. And, do and it we'll again. Do, and we'll do so again for the sake of our listeners. <laughs> and for the sake of my soul. Yes. So train yourself in all godliness. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue, as we've already said. Fight the good fight. Strive for holiness. Crucify the flesh. Press on toward the upward call of Christ. Put on the whole armor of God. Put off your whole nature. And I could go on. The, the scripture is full of these active verbs. These are activities that we ought to be engaged in. But I want to add something very important here, which may, which may uh, be in light of the question I think is on your lips uh, for as soon as I'm done here. <laughs> and that is, yes, it's work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or Peter, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. For his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You will notice the essential element of the Holy Spirit here. So the Holy Spirit is necessary for us to do our part. But there is a part that we play and can resist the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, grieve the Holy Spirit, as Scripture teaches. So it does... uh put a question mark on uh, one classic stream of evangelical thinking about how to live your life as you let go and let God. But that seems like be only half the picture. Yes. I mean, all of these passages that I've cited suggest that there's something required of us. God is doing his part, to be sure, but there is something that is required of us. And this is nothing but a classic sort of synergistic view of sanctification. This is kind of an abstract question. What is the relationship that you see between virtue and morality? Well, I would th- say that having the virtue is constitutive of morality. Which no. means what? Thank you. I also have that question. <laughs> well, that, that virtues are a very essential part of the moral life. They aren't in addition to, but they are part and parcel of the moral life. So it seems to me that living the moral life is a life that is conformed to virtue and insofar as possible absent the vices, the classic seven deadly sins, you know. Pride, envy, anger, greed, gluttony, lust, sloth, those. (laughs) One way that I imagine us being able to live lives like this is to kind of have a virtue framework when we're making decisions. 
So I'm curious, one, how you've seen kind of Christian discourse evolve around how one needs to make decisions. Because in my experience and in my context, the ways that I hear Christians weigh their decisions today are it's based on like, what is God calling me to do? Where do I feel God's presence leading me? It's kind of evoking more sentimental language when it comes to decisions. Sentimental meaning sentiment having to do with feeling. Exactly. Not superficial. I'm not here to critique it or say that, you know, to criticize people for being responsive to what they um, really interpret as what God is calling them to do in that context. But I always found it kind of startling that there are these kind of other exhortations like you just talked about, Jay, about how we should be living our lives and practicing things. And yet when I would hear Christians talk about the future, talk about things that they should or should not do, it didn't seem to kind of evoke or rely on any of this language to do so. I mean, if you look at the, you know, these, as I mentioned, these great grocery lists of virtues and vices that we read about, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, Galatians 5, 2 Timothy, I mean, you get these long lists, don't do this, do this instead. So it's, I I don't think that's a lack in, in the Christian tradition, but maybe just a lack of certain individuals failing to avail themselves of all the richness and the guidelines that Scripture offers us in discerning God's will and in living in into Christ. But you certainly aren't opposed to people praying and listening for the guidance of the Spirit when it comes to certain directions of their life. But I would assume you would think that one of the ways the Spirit has already been speaking to us is through biblical revelation and its list of virtues of what to do and not to do. To be sure. But, you know, I, I don't think that the Scripture, you know, necessarily has specific advice for me to give when, let's say, I'm alienated from a friend and need to reconcile. I mean, in this this particular friend, this instance, this particular occasion. And how to do it and when to do it. and Right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. So let's talk about some of the practical aspects of this. I mean, it's nice to say I want to grow in patience or uh, self-control or whatever, perseverance. Some of the things you can't really, well, you can't really do anything about until something bad happens to you. Are there things one can do to grow in any, a particular virtue or virtues in general? It's interesting. The book of Proverbs says, raise a child up in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. I mean, putting the emphasis on early childhood training in order to set the stage for what you hope will uh, allow virtues to emerge. Aristotle says, for training in childhood, he says, is important, nay, all important, he says. So clearly, I mean, this they're both pointing to a certain kind of environment, particularly a, a family environment, a community environment in which the foundations for these traits have to be laid down. So it's not as if, you know, you just decide at age 40 or 35 or whatever, I'm going to, you know, cultivate this virtue. I mean, you know, the moral life is probably making multiple demands on us. We're having to negotiate many, many temptations and, uh, and various virtue traits have to step in and, and address us. So you were studying and thinking about the virtues uh, while you were raising a family. And so what would be some of the things you did to help train your children in the way they should go? Well, I mean, first of all, as I mentioned a while ago, the importance of worship. My family was planted in the pew every single Sunday, barring absence. So just growing up in the rhythms of the church and hearing the scriptures read and preached again and again and again throughout their uh, growing years, I think, 
is is part of it. We always uh, every every evening after dinner we read a portion of scripture as a family, and then the next day before we read another portion, I gave them all quizzes on <laughs> on what we had read the day before, and it became a contest. So, so have a professor as a father. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> no, I did because <laughs> you know adjusted to their level of. The, you might be interested to know that my two eldest children who went to Wheaton College passed their New Testament and Old Testament exams through examination and never had to take the course because, because they, they knew their Bibles so well. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. One of the challenges I think that adults face, I'm obviously putting myself in that category, is especially if we are not in nuclear family situations. We often are just not in situations where people are seeing us as consistently in kind of intimate settings where they can speak into our character and behavior. Work would probably be the thing where you would end up seeing people as consistently as you might when you're at home, but often your coworkers may not have the same type of connection with you to call out particular things that parents or spouses might have that. And so you know, to some extent, you can really get away with a lot of <laughs> vices during that time because people are just not in your life to the same degree. And I'm wondering if either of you have advice, not necessarily about how to continue growing in virtues during that time, but how you can be someone that can then minister to other people who are in that situation and have that type of influence on someone, how you can be a good um, observer of people, a good observer of feedback, a good coach to the extent that it's appropriate, a solid accountability partner, you know, a, a healthy member of the body of Christ with regards to, um, again, how you're, how you're seen and observing people. Because I don't know exactly if I have a strong idea of how you will grow in those things if you're not being seen in the same way. Well, one of the things that, that I would recommend for, say, a single person is, in fact, for all persons, is to, is to have an, somebody to whom you're accountable. Somebody to whom you are willing to open up and admit to weaknesses, admit to succumbing to temptation, and to seek their guidance and their support and their prayers. So, I mean, I think all of us can, can do that. And we say, and I think everybody acknowledges, oh, yeah, an accountability partner. Yeah, that would be a great thing. But when you get right down to it, how many people are you really willing to allow that kind of access into your life? And I, I find that it's, it's very few one thing that gives people in the professorial business an advantage here is that, in, at least at, at Wheaton College, we're required to set aside so many hours per week just to meet with students. Open door, come on in, just chat. What, what's on your mind? You know, is do you need help with the reading assignments, or are there other things in your life that maybe you'd like to talk about? And I have found over the years that that's one way that you can be made more aware uh, is if you seek people out to just to hear you talk about your life and the struggles that you're undergoing. And, you know, prudence is the first of the cardinal virtues. I mentioned that. Practical wisdom. This is how to think well 
in order to live well. And the first part of prudence, the first step in prudence is deliberation, thinking things through. And Aquinas, for example, says that the way we can do that, sometimes best do that, is by seeking wise counsel. I mean, the the Psalms, you know, uh, extol the value of being surrounded by many wise counselors. So in deliberating through important, you know, times in our lives or particular problems in our lives, seeking that wise counsel, I think, is one of the standard uh, Christian ways of addressing that. And that's one way I, I would encourage, especially younger Christians, that they take advantage of any uh, older Christians they have in their life and uh, approach them when they can. It is surprising to me the number of times people come to me, sometimes it's professional, but sometimes it's other, and they ask for some advice, and it, it's a problem that seems very complex and hard to fathom for them, and they have no idea how to take the next step forward. And for someone with my, you know, the amount of times I've made mistakes in my life, I look at them and I go, no, you shouldn't do this, this, and this, and you probably should do this. It's just, it's immediately clear to me what the situation calls for at that moment. So uh, I do encourage people to find someone who is older and someone who, who, who they can trust to at least speak into their lives. You're not required to do everything they say, and you're not foolish for ignoring what they say, but it's a good you, place just, to you start. just learn a lot of stuff after 40, 50, 60 years of making lots of mistakes. You just learn a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, my, my philosophy is you don't, you don't really learn anything in life until you make mistakes and suffer, and then you really learn it. And hence your genius today. Yeah, my genius, exactly. <laughs> so obviously, we live in a fallen world, you know, there's plenty of people who are not going to live up to these standards. I, I'm just curious, outside of Christian spaces, so church or the ministries or other organizations that all of us here work for, what type of responsibility do we have to call secular leaders to virtuous character? Is this something that we do need to keep our secular leaders accountable to? Or, you know, do we need to measure their work in you know, politicians basically on the platform that we wanted to vote them in on or secular business leaders on hitting particular revenue numbers, for instance. I personally am of the opinion that a person's character follows them into elected office. Meaning? Talk about that a little bit. Well, that wherever you go, there you are. Good, the bad, and the ugly, the virtues and the vices. If a, if a, if a man will cheat on his wife and lie to his wife, what makes us think he wouldn't cheat on somebody he doesn't even know, like the, the masses, the populace? So, and every time I say that, somebody says, well, what about so-and-so, you know, Napoleon or somebody? What a great leader he was. And it doesn't strike me that he was particularly virtuous. Okay. So every time I say that, uh, somebody will point out that there was this virtuous person who was yeah, a great leader. Yeah. Right. That, you know, they'll say, this great, this president here wasn't much morally, but, you know, was a great strategist, tactician, politician. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I maintain my view. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, your view is actually factual on whether we, how we honor and reward people for their contributions to society. Scripture would say, really, blessings on you, Napoleon, for being a great military strategist. But really, what, what was your heart like toward God and toward other human beings? That's how he'll be judged in the kingdom of heaven. So one realistic question, anyone who attempts any of the virtues or struggles with a particular virtue will often find themselves failing daily at the very thing they're striving for. In fact, it's been my experience, the moment I decide to try to strive to 
work on some virtue. Let's say I want to be more patient with certain people or with certain situations. I find that it's more difficult to be patient than ever. Seems like there, there is a, a force out there that's making it more difficult. And I find myself failing more than ever. Here's an important difference, once again, between the Greek and Christian traditions. Aristotle's, uh, Aristotle thought that a person could be perfected in the virtues, such that, well, let's just take um, self-control or something like that. Aristotle thought that it was possible to become perfected, that the phronimos, the, the great wise person in your midst, could have become perfected in this. And the Christian tradition has always taught that throughout our lives, we are never beyond temptation. There is nobody so holy, there is nobody so virtuous that they could not possibly be tempted. And I think that, that that's an important difference when you say when we're struggling and find ourselves failing, we have to acknowledge first that our perfection won't be consummated until the next life. <laughs> that in this life, we'll continue to struggle in various ways. Though we hope from one degree of glory, maybe that degree isn't a, a big degree, but we're, we're nevertheless growing from one degree of glory to another. One of the realities for me is that uh, if I find myself that I have actually seen myself grow, grow in a certain way, what I discover, like you, like you discover in knowledge in general, all of a sudden... You, open up new vistas of how I could practice that virtue in even greater ways or how I fail in even greater ways. So it is kind of an interesting paradox, uh, that growth. The other thing that's, uh, uh, I just read a quote by Lewis on that, and it makes me think that maybe perseverance is the fundamental, after faith, perseverance is the fundamental Christian virtue because after striving for some virtue, patience or chastity or lack of greed, generosity, let's say, and you fail every single day at that, and maybe many times a day at it. He says the important thing is to just bow your head, seek forgiveness, and get up and try again. And sometimes just keep praying that you'll have the ability to get up, to bow your head, ask for forgiveness, and try again. And that strikes me as a pretty realistic view of attacking some of the virtues that are the hardest for us. And everybody has their own story to tell about, you know, areas where they don't struggle as much and areas where they struggle, struggle more. So there's no stock prescription here that I think you can just give everybody as they struggle with temptation. And nor is this an occasion for despair in the sense of, because it does make you despair thinking, man, I just, I, I just, I'm not capable of doing it. To which the Lord says, well, of course you're not. <laughs> That's why I, I love, I suffered and died for you and offer you the Holy Spirit for help. And this is not a surprise to me that you failed again. This is not shocking to me. <laughs> so What a disappointment. We cannot shock God with how bad <laughs> yeah. we are. All right. Well, I, I will just add one more thing since I can wrap up the show that one way that you can also build more self-awareness is to journal. And, you know, maybe you're deluded at the time that you are journaling about your life. But if you journal longitudinally, you really can kind of look back about how you've changed your areas where you were particularly weak in that maybe you are still weak in and that you need to address or areas where you have grown. I know that that's been one way that I've been able to just kind of like see a different picture of myself. Also, I do not journal, but that is on my New Year's resolution. <laughs> Get back into that, which is something I did a lot in college, but don't always make time for now. All right. Well, thank you. Jay for your insight in this conversation. People who have feedback can leave it to us on Twitter. We're at CT Podcast. And you can also send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. 
All right. So as we start this new year, I do want to just say thank you to everyone who donated to Christianity Today over the past year. One way that's really important in just keeping this podcast up and running. We really appreciated your support. And as you know, we've gotten the chance to share with you a little bit more about the stuff that Mark and I do as part of our jobs. And from what I understand, Mark, you are actually, as you would say, taking one for the team <laughs> and going to Germany in a couple weeks. Exactly. So what's happening? So there I'll be a part of a, a, a conference on religious journalism, and it's being sponsored by some, uh, uh, the University of Mainz Department of Religion, I guess, and uh, they've got funding to invite practitioners of religious journalism from all over the world to come and talk to scholars about what we do, why we do it, how we do it, what difference we think it makes. So that's a special opportunity, obviously, but it is one way in which Christianity Today speaks into a larger conversation, uh, not only in the United States, but across the world. So it's a really privilege to do that. Where will you be in Germany? I'm taking my wife, my lovely wife of 44 years. So we're going to spend a couple of days in Poland before we actually get there, and then some days in Munich afterwards. Okay. And actually, I'll be meeting with someone in Austria who uh, attended one of our fundraising events in New York City. So it's a nice serendipity to have that sort of thing happen. Cool. Well, we'll definitely get a report from you when you get back about how your trip was. Again, if you would like to support our podcast, you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcast. That's morect.com slash podcast. And we are super appreciative to all of you who donate so generously to support our ministry. Now's the time of the show we call Precious Moments, and everyone gets to share something that has recently brought them joy. Go, Mark, go. So... I have a number of things. I guess I better narrow it down to one. But obviously, before Christmas, uh, we had our during Christmas, we have our whole family come to us this year, and so the delightful moment was when the very first daughter, son-in-law, and new grandchild showed up and to greet them, play with Lyndon, six-month-old, a lively and sprite young man already, energetic. Really? So at six months he old, may, at six months old, he's just moving, he's bouncing, he's not singing, but making guttural noises because he just loves to hear his own voice. <laughs> this is an amazing thing—a voice. Ah. <laughs> well, that's really cool then. Yeah. Because you go down to New Orleans a decent amount to see them, but yeah, it must be fun having them come up to see you too. All right, where can people find you? So I published something called the Galley Report. That's spelled G-A-L-L-I report. You can find it at christianitytoday.com slash the galley report. I link to uh, articles and make comments on them, and some people seem to find it helpful. Take it away, Jay. What is your precious moment? It bespeaks our age, but uh, I too am grateful for seven grandchildren and learned just this week that uh, one of my daughters-in-law is pregnant with twins. Wow. And that was just a great, a great joy. Was that a surprise for that family? It was. It is. <laughs> <laughs> How many do they have already? Two. Okay. Two, yes. But now you're going to double that. <laughs> wow. Well, that's very cool. Jay always has to top me. I've got five grandkids. He has seven. He says, I'm just going to turn the knife. I'm having nine, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Jay, do you have any place where people can find you outside of this podcast? Yes. At the Wheaton College website, you can just dial up the Department of Philosophy, and I have a page on there 
I haven't ever looked at it, but I'm told that it's there. <laughs> anyway, it may exist. I'm, I'm pretty confident it exists, but yes. Jay is old school. He's the person who believes in real face-to-face, body-to-body, real-life experience with someone. He's not a social media person. All right. So just find out when his office hours are then and exactly. then drop in for them. That's <laughs> you, you're more than well. He's very approachable. My precious moment is kind of silly, but I've been wanting, I I actually like legitimately like it. I commute from Chicago out to the suburbs four days a week. And I actually really like my commute, which I know like shocks people since it's about a 50 to 55 minute commute. But I've been doing it for the past four and a half years. And one, I like it because it actually gets me places on time. I am not good at being on time, but when the train comes is when the train comes. So then you have to leave, which sometimes leads to situations where I'm like running to the train if I don't have my bike that day or like screaming from my bike to the conductor to hold the train, which the conductors are really nice. But the conductors are, and which speaking of which, the conductors are very cool people. And I have built my own relationships with them over the past couple of years because they're people that speaking of people you see all the time, you know, I see them every single day when I get on the train. and. Since I do the reverse commute, I think they actually have time to kind of chat with the regulars and talk with them. And that's a little bit different, you know, than taking the subway where you don't really see a conductor ever. But the Metro staff is really cool and I'm thankful for them. And then obviously there's a biking part of my commute as well, which I also just really enjoy. It's only like 15 minutes to get to the train, but I usually listen to a podcast or something. Yeah, I I just really enjoy that time where I don't have to kind of think about and the listener should be aware she when she says biking she means december january february as long as it doesn't go below 15 degrees and then sometimes people like mark will drive me thank you mark and as far as finding me outside of this podcast you can do so on twitter i'm at m-e-p-a-y-n-l thank you everyone for listening to our first episode of the year for quick to listen it has been great to have you and we're so glad that you listen This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. Our theme music is by Sweeps. You can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you decide to rate and review it, please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review it there. If you want to support the podcast financially, you can do so by going to morect.com slash podcasts. And we will see you all next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.